Hi, I'm Fred Schonenberg, and thank you for joining me on the Venture Fuel podcast. At Venture Fuel, we help companies find new solutions by partnering with the best startups from around the world. On the show, you'll learn the secrets of business leaders who tap into startups and the founders driving extraordinary results. We'll consider new ideas, stretch our mindsets beyond the status quo, and in the process, discover how to leap the competition and fuel personal growth. On today's show, we have Hannah Jones, the CEO of the Earthshot Prize, a prize and platform founded by His Royal Highness Prince William and the Royal Foundation in 2020 to search, spotlight, and scale solutions that can help repair and regenerate the planet in this decade. Hannah's bio is so ridiculously impressive, it would take the entire show just to introduce her properly. So let me rattle a few highlights. She was Nike's first chief sustainability officer. She was founder of Nike's Valiant Labs, which brought lean startup and entrepreneurialism to Nike. She was on the founding team of Microsoft's philanthropy program in EMEA. She was twice named to Fast Company's top 100 creative people list and a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader. I can also sum up Hannah by sharing some notes uh, from former employees and colleagues, one of whom is now VentureFuel's clients, heard I was interviewing Hannah and wrote to me, so much of who I am is thanks to her. A prominent venture capitalist who introduced me to Hannah originally uh, heard I was talking with her and she said, quote, she's fantastic and continues to be a mentor and source of inspiration to me. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Hannah Jones. Hannah, it's so nice to have you on the show. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here with you. So first off, I, I just watched the production of the first Earthshot Prize event, which was just stunning. It was absolutely captivating. You had David Attenborough, astronauts from the International Space Station, Ed Sheeran, uh, Sean Mendez. I loved your idea of the green carpet. Just the whole thing was brilliantly done. Yeah, well, thank you. And actually, we just won a BAFTA award for it, uh, the, hot off the press. So uh, we've won two awards, a Royal Television Society Award and a BAFTA Award. So it's just been uh, an incredible ride. And the award ceremony is really the tip of the iceberg, but it's, it's the tip that, that really sums up our philosophy of what we're trying to do with the Earthshot Prize, which is to spread urgent optimism and to spark the public's imagination that there are solutions out there that could truly contribute if we scaled them to changing the way we think about this planet and our trajectory. I love urgent optimism. I want, I want to come back to that. Can you talk a little bit about maybe just level setting on the, what the Earthshot Prize is? And I mean, the, the prizing is, is staggering, which we can let you get into here. But I, I love that it was sort of modeled off of the JFK moonshot rally and cry. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about what the, the prizing is and, and the program overall? Yeah. And maybe I should start with our founder and the origin story, because it's, yeah. a, it's a really important part of who we are, which is we're founded by Prince William, the Duke of Cambridge, who for a long time has been very active in conservation in particular, but also a, a number of other environmental areas. And he was struck back in 2019 by this kind of interesting tension that he was seeing. And the one was that he was in Namibia at the time visiting a conservation project that had been enormously successful in reversing poaching and in actually creating sustainable livelihoods through ecotourism for the communities that had been 
subsisting off poaching and just saw the incredible like impact of what was happening in the community and in conservation, but it wasn't being scaled. It was a beautiful pilot project that would never go much bigger. And he felt enormously frustrated that we have these solutions, but they're not being scaled or blueprinted and reproduced around the world as fast as they could be. And the second observation that he had at the time was that there was a real sense out in the public sphere of anger and gloom and anxiety. And as I think, you know, all of us who've lived through even just the anxiety of COVID can tell you, when people are in that place of fear and anger and anxiety, actually, it's very hard to get traction. It's very hard to create movement around change. A lot of the times people retrench and kind of sit back with that fear. So from that, he took inspiration from the JFK moonshot challenge to the American people. And if you think about the moonshot challenge that President Kennedy set the world, it was within the decade, let's land a man on the moon. It was a man. We'll forgive him for that. Could have been any gender. Let's land a man on the moon and bring him home safely. And that was the single vision that he wanted the American people to rally around, which of course at the time would have sounded utterly impossible. But what it did, apart from the fact that they did land a man on the moon and bring him home safely, was if you think about it, it was actually a huge innovation revolution that it spurred. Because we're still living off the innovations that actually made the NASA work possible. It also left every young child around the world dreaming of becoming an astronaut. And that cultural zeitgeist, that belief that this possibility could be in your life became a super important, I think, cultural, we all think, a big cultural shift in the way in which the American people and others imagined their world. And I won't even go into the impact of seeing the planet fragile as it was from space. Right. So when you translate that to the Earthshot Prize, we see ourselves as doing two core pieces of work. The first is to go and discover innovation around the world that actually have solu- are creating solutions that could really help change our trajectory and regenerate the planet. And I'll come on to where those solutions lie and what kind they are. And we don't just want to sort of find, we don't just want to find them. We want to also help select the winning ones that we think have the greatest potential to go from a working prototype rapidly to scale and to help them on that journey to scale, both in terms of helping them with support, advisory, mentorship, access to networks, access to uh, information, access to support, access to capital, but also really being able to highlight and spotlight those ideas with our second key pillar, which is to be great storytellers. How do we make this all come to life so that people can go, oh, actually, I could imagine that in my life. I can imagine that that would make my life better, not worse, that I wouldn't be losing, that actually I would be moving towards something. And so that's where the award ceremony comes in, which is at the end of this year of finding innovations, nurturing them, helping matchmake them with potential partners around uh, their ability to scale, awarding five of them with some very significant prize money, We're also in the business of telling this story of these innovators and telling the story of these solutions. So two things, storytelling and innovation 
work is at the heart of what we do. And all of that is underpinned by this incredible ecosystem of partners that we've assembled, both in terms of philanthropists, investors, but also not-for-profits, academics. We have a global alliance of partners who are working hand-in-glove with us to fundamentally try to accelerate innovation and spur urgent optimism in the world around us. So can you tell us a little bit about the five winners um, from this year and and maybe just the areas uh, and why you focused on those areas? Yeah. Yeah. So we have five earth shots that are awarded every year and they are obviously climate change. So we're looking for solutions that are addressing climate. We're looking for solutions that are addressing the need to clean our air, remove waste, restore our oceans, and restore our biodiversity. So we have five Earthshots, and each one of them receives a million pounds per award every year. We also, we don't just focus on the five winners, although we think they're critically important. We also are looking at the nominations as a whole, and within that, the top 100, the top 30, and the top 15. And in particular with the top 15, we are very dedicated to nurturing, supporting, and helping them to scale their work as well. So whilst we're a prize, we're actually trying to unravel this idea of competitiveness because we are, that's a whole other philosophical mindset that we have about collaboration is going to get us to system change, not competition. And so for us, we're trying to make sure that we spread the benefit of being a nominee into the prize to as many of the groups as we possibly can. So of our first cohort of finalists and winners from 2021, first of all, we had the most amazing entrance. We were blown away for the first year of a prize. And the way in which we receive nominations is through uh, official nominators. So we had, at the time that year, we had 150 nominators from around the world who submitted uh, somewhere close to 800 nominations. This year, we've increased our nominators to over 350 with a particular eye to diversity and representation. And I'm super proud of some of the early indicators around the the real diversity and representation that we see coming through. So last year's nominees went through a pretty rigorous process. We have a very intense vetting process that is actually done in partnership with Deloitte. Uh, And then we have experts that go in and look at all of the uh, top 100, top 30. And then finally, it culminates in a global prize council made up of the Duke, Sir David Attenborough, Cristiano Figueres, Shakira, Danny Alves, Hindu Ibrahim. The names go on. And they're a really amazing group of people that come together to make that difficult decision about who the top 15 and the top five should be. One thing that's really important to note is we are business model agnostic. So our solutions live in cities. They live in startups. They could be a not-for-profit. They could be a country. They could be an activist. They could be an individual. They could be an academic. What we care about is, is the solution at a working prototype level showing some signs of traction in delivering results and impact? And if it were to be scaled, would its impact on carbon, greenhouse gases, biodiversity, and or sustainable livelihoods be significant enough that we should all be getting behind this idea. So with that, let me maybe give you, bring it to life a bit. 
Yeah. Um, because at the end of the day, this cohort have almost become like a family with us. And we're, I mean, it was just amazing to meet these individuals who are on this really brave quest to do what they're doing. So we have one winner in India. Um, the organization is called Takcha. And the problem that they identified was that the stubble from the farm uh, crops was being burnt. And as a result of being burnt, it was contributing significantly to air pollution, which, as you know, in Delhi and other big cities is a major issue. So they basically came up with a contraption. I don't know what else to call it. It's amazing. But it's sort of like a coffee torrification machine. And it takes the stubble and it runs it through a very high heat process and turns it into fertilizer. Really rich, amazing fertilizer. And so the benefits are threefold. One, instead of burning their crops stubble, they put it in the machine. So obviously, huge impact on air pollution. Secondly, actually has an impact on carbon. And thirdly, is increasing the productivity and the yield of the farmer's fields, which therefore is generating additional income and security for the farmer, which, as you can imagine, is a huge component of this. So brilliant organization. Super proud to have awarded them a million pounds in a grant. They are now connected with many of our global alliance partners, some of whom are the big corporate partners who have big agricultural supply chains. And they're in talks about how could the uh, company give them a procurement deal so that they actually help pull the volume of the products through their supply chains. And by the way, obviously, then being able to point to how they're addressing scopes two, three, et cetera, in their supply chain around carbon. So it's a good example of where this amazing idea has scalability and actually fairly easy scalability, but it is always difficult to scale. And it's all about getting the right people in the right room and finding the shared interests and then pulling hard on that innovation. Hmm. I'll give you another example. So um, we, who I visited in the Grand Bahamas, as did the Duke and the Duchess, so as you know, coral reefs are massively impacted uh, by what's happening in our planet. And this group called Coral Vita have found a way of growing coral in a way that it is uh, more resistant to heat and more resistant to acidification. And then they plant them. They go and plant the coral on the destroyed coral reefs or the challenged coral reefs. Significant potential impact. They still need to figure out some additional support from a technology perspective to go even faster in their scale journey. But we know when you look at the Grand Bahamas, when you fly into the Grand Bahamas, the whole island was devastated by a hurricane, uh, Dorian, I think it was about four years ago. And you can still see the devastation. Had the mangroves and the coral reefs been healthy and fully in place, the impact of that hurricane would have been less. And the, the whole island would have had its economy and its community more protected had those natural barriers been in place. And so you just start to see when you bring it to life how fast we have to go on the growing of coral. And it's not, we're not going to get there with the old kind of methodologies. We actually need to think about how we fast track new methodologies and go really fast. I have so many, I want to go into so many, I want to hear about all the other prizes, but I also want to understand a little bit, you, you mentioned the need to scale. And I think a lot of times in innovation work, there's always that friction. 
between is this a clever idea or is this something that can really, you know, can you blueprint it, as you mm-hmm. said earlier? Obviously, you did a lot of this at Nike with Valiant Labs, uh, and now you're doing it here. What advice do you have for large organizations that might be listening to this and they're thinking about their sustainability uh, and, and what they need to do to change? But you know, sometimes the feeling is the juice might not be worth the squeeze. And just curious your advice from, from your, your various uh, yeah. vantage points. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is the question. Right. And it is the question I've been trying to find answers to for maybe 20 years. (laughs) Uh, So whether or not I've got answers is another thing. And when it comes to sustainability, everyone is betting on various different levers being pulled to create system change. We bet on incremental processes. We bet on policies. We bet on new forms of regulation. We bet on level playing fields. The big bet that I truly believe is game-changing is to bet on sustainability as an innovation and a growth lever. And so I think that one of the um, challenges that companies may face, not all, but many, is that for a very long time, sustainability, rightly or wrongly, was positioned as a function, often in a corporate function, but with with not particularly huge engagement in the actual running of innovation or P&Ls. Increasingly, companies are getting that. But there's few companies that have truly positioned sustainability as an innovation portfolio that needs to be looked at and nurtured. Everything from what are the evolutionary innovations that we can pull through that are ready now and to go to scale and volume and hit our gross margin. What are the easy fixes? But then also what are the revolutionary and the disruptive that could also create not just sustainable solutions, but new growth opportunities for those companies? And some of those will take the tools that we're used to seeing being used in mainstream corporate venture, M&A, innovation, all the stuff that we're used to seeing being used in mainstream innovation actually needs to now be triply focused on sustainable innovation. And actually, sustainable innovators, we call them eco-innovators. Eco-innovators face the same innovators' dilemma they face the same roller coaster of emotion and pain and setbacks that we've all lived and we see every day with the, the innovators we know. But they need almost double the support because the markets aren't quite yet in a place where they're recognizing that if you have sustainable innovation and you're scaling it, you're actually probably more resilient as a business and more interesting as an investable corporation. Whereas right now, that's still a disadvantage. You know, there's still the, the markets and the system still lag in understanding that resiliency and survival levels for corporations around the world is going to be how fast they can accelerate their journey to net zero and beyond. It's super interesting. My question for you, you use the phrase urgent optimism, which I love. And I think... Uh, The Duke used the phrase stubborn optimism. And I think David Attenborough said the word hope uh, during the the broadcast the other night. This is an area that can feel very overwhelming and emotionally hopeless. How do you do that from a storytelling standpoint? Because your point, it it, it can be paralyzing. You can feel like as an individual, your your contributions aren't going to make that big a difference. Or even as an organization, a big company, you know, you're one of, you know, however many spokes to this wheel. How are you all telling that story and and getting people past that sort of emotional barrier? Well, I I certainly think 
I'm a big believer in focusing on solutions and delight and sparking imagination with what is possible. And I think personally, I take a lot of inspiration from how I've watched change happen seemingly overnight, but in fact, it's taken years, but we only notice it as overnight. So, you know, do you remember the day you stopped buying vinyl and you just went straight over to an iPod? Do you remember the day that you got your first iPhone and never looked back? Yeah. Do you remember a day when the idea that you would rent your bed to some stranger was a lunacy or your car? So when you think about the history of innovation, how much you can reduce the friction for the citizen and the consumer to go, I want that. That sounds fantastic, is I think key to the storytelling piece of this. You know, I mean... We were, we were sitting with Bill Gates after the award ceremony last year and the Duke. And Bill Gates said, you know, I've just realized what it is that you're doing. And I was like, great, because you're a partner. So it's really good that you're realizing what we're doing. I'm really glad. And but he you know, slid the contract over the table yeah, yeah, for next you know, year. And, right? and Breakthrough Ventures have been amazing partners to us. He said, you got green hydrogen in the centerfold of People magazine. And I said, oh, yeah, we did. And the point was, as an environmental movement, we have spent so long, myself included, talking to people about facts and science and logic. But what we haven't been great at is making it seem as delightful, as frictionless, as interesting, and as good as you've seen other big brands do in how they've brought new products to market. And then for a corporation... You know, I think so many of the incumbent systems that companies are relying on are being disrupted. And so the question is, you know, it's the old adage, do you want to be disrupted or want to be the disruptor? And so if you're not investing in sustainable innovation as a play for how you're thinking about your growth, then I think that's probably quite problematic for your long-term future. I couldn't agree more. So how, how do big companies get involved in the Earthshot Prize? And and on the flip side, how do startups potentially bubble up their efforts to the recommenders? Is there Are there paths that you want people yes. to take? Yes, absolutely. So from a, let, let's start with the innovators because those are the focus for us is we want to know all the eco innovators out there in the world. And we actually want to try and help draw a picture that there is this growing revolution of eco-innovators who are quitting their careers, stepping to one side and putting purpose at the center of everything they do. And they're using their talent and their determination and their grit to solve problems that no one solved before. And we want to spotlight them. We want to know them. We want to highlight them to the world. And even if they don't win our prize, we want them to feel that they're part of a community that's growing and a movement that is hugely powerful and gets more support. So the way to do that is through our website, we list our official nominators, many of whom do open calls, not just selected calls. And so I would say, obviously, this year, we've already closed our second round of nominations. But coming up to October, November would be a great time for any eco innovator anywhere to make sure that they are reaching out to nominators or to us. And we'll, we'll signpost for people as we want to see as many people possible telling us what they're doing. Yeah. From a corporate perspective, there are multiple ways of getting involved. We have a global alliance of partners 
um, many of whom are bringing um, really significant support to the table because what they're doing is we're, we're trying to matchmake them with nominees and finalists who we know would be of interest to either their investment and venture arm or for their procurement and supply chain arm, or indeed as a talent and leadership development opportunity by having someone in their team senior be a mentor to one of the founders. So we're brokering those conversations. And actually what we're doing is this year building out a bit more of a system. We're a real startup. Last year was our first year and it was completely white space. So everything you teach everyone about startups, Fred, it's what we're going through. We'll probably have to pivot three times on almost everything. Of course. Um, so we're learning how do we give support to finalists? And to do that, we're really thinking about how we build out uh, a very intense, tailored program of support for finalists. And you can imagine we have some amazing founding partners and some amazing people as advisors, whether it's the Mark, the Mark Benioffs or the Mike Bloombergs, you know, just incredible access to people with huge battle scars and wisdom about what it is to scale. And then from a scaling perspective, we're really trying to build out an investor and blended capital network so that we can be almost dating agency matchmakers yeah. between finalists and venture capitalists philanthropists, foundations, impact funders, or corporates. It's beautiful. So let me ask you this. Is there, I mean, this must be such rewarding and challenging work. Are there anything, things that you've learned being surrounded by all these change agents the past you know, year and a half, two years that you think could help us as individuals, right? This is, this is something that I think about all the time is, you know, how can we make difference in our daily lives. Is there anything that from doing this that is, you go, geez, I wish everyone knew that they could just do X, Y, Z. Are there any uh, pieces of wisdom you'd want to share with everyone? Well, one of the things we did this year was we commissioned someone to help us research what were the areas that would be tipping points if they scaled in the next three to five years across the five earth shots. And she interviewed experts around the world and it became our selection priorities akin to an investment thesis. Mm -hmm. And it's called the Roadmap to Regeneration and you can download copies on our, on our website. And one of the things that it struck me was that some of the things that would make a huge difference felt relatively simple and things I could do in my life. And I always get very frustrated. I, I, I know a lot of people do. The, the single question people ask us every single time is, what can I do to make a difference? But don't tell me I need to influence government because that's too, you know, beyond me. And then people go off on a rant about government. And don't tell me to change my light bulb because I'm going to, that's not enough. Like what's, what's the other bit I can do? Yeah. And I think there's a number of ways to do this. Number one, there are personal decisions around how you vote, how you consume, how you use your purchasing power that actually do make a difference. If we all went to four days a week or five days a week of um, plant-based diet, the impact would be huge. If we all moved away from dairy, the impact would be really significant from a carbon footprinting. It's not difficult. We should all go do it. So be it. Then I think there's an interesting place if you're someone that defines yourself as an investor, as an angel investor which is we need to make sure that we're starting to flow capital. And whether you're a philanthropist or an investor, blended capital is actually a really important piece of this. How do we flow capital to 
this entire generation of eco-innovators that are at the seed and the angel and the series A, B and beyond. And by the way, I don't think that's an act of, you know, giving your money away. I think that's a really savvy investment act. And that if you're a savvy investor, you're thinking about what your portfolio looks like when it comes to green energy, when you think about nature-based financial mechanisms that are emerging. I think there's some incredibly interesting uh, work emerging on that. So I would say the third and final one is this is going to be the talent magnet for the next decade or more. This is where the talent is. We are meeting incredible talent that are purpose-driven, have stepped away from you know, their big Ivy League university and the expectation that they're going to go into some big banking or whatever. And they are, they are entrepreneurs down to the heart. And it doesn't matter whether they're in government, actually, or whether they're a for-profit or not-for-profit. I would argue they're being very entrepreneurial and they're putting purpose at the center of everything they do. And I think this is where the talent is going to be significantly. And so either join them or mentor them or support them. But I'd say keep your eye on this movement because right now, mostly it's fragmented and not seen particularly. But that's what every movement has done. Every innovation wave has started out by being only visible to those that are really looking. And then suddenly it was the sharing economy. Right. I love it. Is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have, that you would like to share with everyone? You talked about stubborn optimism. And I do just want to say one of the things that we're doing this year is we're spinning out of the Royal Foundation, uh, which was always planned to become an independent organization. And so our new board, the chair of our board is Christiana Figueres, who, as you know, chaired uh, the Paris Agreement and brokered it. And stubborn optimism is really coming from her. She is the proponent around stubborn optimism, and we have added urgent optimism to that. So I think being both stubborn and urgent is probably the way forward. But I deeply believe, and I just leave it at this, You know, it's easy to read the IPCC reports and to see the news and to feel real climate anxiety. But every day I get up and meet eco-innovators that are making a difference and that are bringing solutions that, if scaled, could actually repair and regenerate the planet. And we don't have to wait for some technology 20 years down the road. We have more than enough innovative ideas and solutions. We need to scale them. Love it. Someone just said to me today, how how are you so upbeat and happy and enthusiastic. And I said, I, I spend all day with innovators, with people creating new things that are totally. trying to change the world. And it's, it's infectious uh, in the totally. best way possible. Well, Hannah, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time and all you're doing to spark change and can't wait to see uh, this year's uh, finalists and, and event. Yeah. And we'll be in America. So watch out. Oh, I'll be there. <laughs> Take care. Take care. Thank you so Thanks, much. Fred. Thanks so much for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I enjoyed talking with Hannah. You have to go look for the Earthshot Prize online. Uh, The videos are just unbelievable uh, and it's completely captivating and very hopeful, as you can tell just from the conversation with Hannah. Of course, please go to LinkedIn, follow at Venture Fuel. We have a number of upcoming events, including on May 24th from 12 to 1 Eastern Standard Time. We have our health and wellness focused event, which is going to look at some of the innovators uh, that Hannah's talking about, but specifically around our health 
and our wellness and well-being. Uh, So thanks again for listening. Looking forward to seeing you at the event. And of course, on the next episode of the Venture Fuel Visionaries podcast.